is going out, talking to people, being being close to trying to understand. I think that's that's really funny aspects of of a PhD journey. Just listen to Florian Trauner, a professor at the Free University of Brussels in EU Migration and Home and Justice Affairs, and he is today's guest. Florian wrote his dissertation on the Europeanization of the Western Balkans. Surprise, surprise, that's also what we're going to talk about today. We're going to touch upon the prospects of EU accession of the Western Balkans. Besides that, we also talk about his work as an advisor to the European Commission and Florian explains why national governments often blame Brussels for its wrongdoings, but never really highlight its successes. Sit back and enjoy. Hello Florian, how are you doing? Uh, could you briefly introduce yourself and also talk a bit about what you're busy with at the moment? Yeah, hi Sam, great to be with you. So my name is Florian, Florian Trauner. I'm a political science professor at the Free University of Brussels in the Dutch-speaking one, so the Freie Universität Brussels. So I'm doing research on European integration, and I usually have a, a particular focus on the subjects of migration, asylum, border controls, and linkages between the EU's internal security and foreign relations and, and foreign policy making. Fair enough. And is there like a personal, like how come that you're so intrigued by uh, uh, by these policy um, uh, matters of the EU? I mean, there is a bit of a personal story behind this too, because I, I basically grew up in, a, in an Austrian village, so I haven't had much of a European feeling when I was very young. <laughs> uh, but then I, I did Erasmus uh, in Copenhagen. And I met a French young girl back then, and she she became my wife. And okay. uh, a bit of a more European life started. I moved around in Europe. Uh, we have more languages at home. And I, I become much more intrigued by the whole kind of political context in which we set up our own lives. And since that moment, since Copenhagen, I really started also to do research on, on the European Union. So I understand that all of your kids are Erasmus babies, so to say. Then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true Erasmus babies. Yeah, we can. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and um, based on that, then I suppose you you kind of had your interest in these policy areas, and that led to your dissertation, uh, your PhD research, um, which is titled "The Europeanization of the Western Balkans." Um, I understand now why you're like more have a link with Europe, but how does the Western Balkans and the Europeanization come into that? Actually, again, here there is a bit of a personal story behind it because uh, when I was a, a kid, a pupil, so let's say 12, 13, uh, there was this implosion of the former Yugoslavia, the, 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 the war in, in Bosnia. And back then there was a refugee coming directly, randomly to my parents' house, ringing and asking if he could, uh, if he could find shelter for some time there. And my parents actually said, Yes, and so this person lived for two years in in our house, and uh, I really got to to be very interested, or I grew up with him having being around, and I got interested in this southeastern European setting, uh, and uh, I I started on my PhD doing research on this particular region, which became to be known as Western Balkans, basically, 
And yeah, it was a, a few years later, but uh, I think my personal interest really started back then in my, my teenager. I see, I see. And then um, the Western Balkans, maybe for the listeners, what exactly comprises the Western Balkans? Like which countries? Or The Western Balkans is a more a technical term, you could say so, because, I mean, it's basically a Southeastern European region okay. that is not in the European Union. So in former times after Yugoslavia imploded, there was all these small states popping up uh, and the European Union asked, how do we, I mean, how do we subsume them? The EU likes to deal with regions. So they said all the former countries of Yugoslavia plus Albania, but minus Slovenia, because Slovenia was already in the, they are the Western Balkans. So basically it's Albania, Bosnia-Herzegovina, North Macedonia, Montenegro, Kosovo, Serbia. In former times, there was also Croatia, but Croatia also basically slipped out of this concept once they became a member of the European Union in 2013. Exactly. And then on, in your in your research, you study like how the process of Europeanization is, is kind of applied on the Western Balkans, right? Can you maybe give a, a brief overview of what this concept of Europeanization, what does that entail in your research? Yeah, so I was interested in the ways in which the European Union influences non-member states. I mean, you can expect that the EU influences quite substantially Belgium because Belgium is a member state. Yeah. But it's not obvious that you always assume that the European Union has a strong influence on non-member states, be it right now in the southeastern European region, but you could also say like states like Ukraine or Moldova or even Morocco. So there, there were scholars coming up with this concept of Europeanization which is basically interested exactly to to come more into the dynamics in which the EU exerts uh, influence in, in third countries. And I was doing in my PhD, or I was applying this particular lens on the states of the Western Balkans. So it's really a kind of foreign policy analysis on uh, on, on the Western Balkans then, right? Yeah, it was a foreign policy, more specifically enlargement, because... Enlargement policy is a very particular uh, foreign policy setup. In enlargement, the states, they really explicitly voice an interest to become members of the European Union. So they voluntarily accept a lot of influence, if you want to say so, uh, from the European Union, because they want to become a kind of, a, as the other member states are already. So they want to to be able to join the single market. They want to introduce the euro one day. They want to, to become a member states. So the, the EU's potential influence in an enlargement setting is unusually high, you could say. Because there's like, diff there's like different stakes and like different leverages, right? Yeah. I mean, I think they just prepare systematically to become able to join the European Union. So the European Union tells them you have to fulfill certain conditions. You have to become a democratic state. You have to become a very competitive market economy. You have to accept all the rules that we have basically adopted thus far. And then once you, you do fulfill all these conditions, then you can join the European Union. That's basically the point of departure for any enlargement policy. And this was the, the also the dynamic that worked relatively smoothly in the Eastern enlargement to, let's say, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic. But in the Western Balkans, it's a bit more tricky, if you want to say so, because formally it's an enlargement policy and formally they want to join. But mm -hmm. 
de facto are there many EU member states who are not so keen to have them actually in, in particular right now. So it's a more open-ended process. The time frame is not so clear. Uh, and and it's it, there are even some who question whether the Western Balkans will one day actually become member states. Exactly. Isn't it then a bit of like... Have like a kind of a, a carrot method where they hold a carrot, they have this big thing in front, like, oh, you can become a member. But in the end, practically, the, as you said, de facto, it's a very hard thing, right? Isn't that a bit um, not very honest discourse in that sense? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the carrot thing definitely applies. There's this big carrot. Uh, you can join the European Union with this carrot. It's... It's basically, I mean, you can win elections in the Western Balkans. The, many of the citizens really want to, to join the European Union. They, sometimes you have the impression that at the fringes of Europe, the geographical fringes of Europe, the feeling of Europeanness is even stronger than in the center. The, many of the young people are really very fond of the European Union. So this is basically a very strong incentive. But as you said, uh, uh, At the moment, it's not so clear if they are actually willing to, to hand over this incentive in the end. So is this dishonest? I mean, you could say this is, this is politics. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the governments in France, in, in, in Germany, in, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, they also have to listen to what their voters say to be re-elected. And if there is in general a bit of an enlargement fatigue, as it is often called, they cannot simply say we ignore everything what our own citizens say and we simply take them in. So they have to yeah. do, on the one hand, listen to their own voters and there is not so much demand at the moment to further enlarge. Uh, and at the same time, there are also foreign policy concerns why you still keep on going with enlargement policy. I mean, it provides an incentive for reform, it provides stability in a setting that has has seen a, a war just, a, I mean, it's not so long time ago, 30 no, years okay. ago. So it's, there are different calculations that have to be kept in mind in a way. Yeah, do you think, like, because initially there was a, a, just a partnership program, right, with the Western Balkans um, in the aftermath of the, uh, the, uh, the wars, like the Bosnian wars there, do you think that kind of everything set everything in motion and from there the Balkans naturally grew uh, closer to the European Union? I mean, if you look at the map, you can see the Western Balkans right now is really kind of a whole. They are surrounded by Bulgaria, Romania, Greece, Hungary, uh, Slovenia. So they are surrounded by EU member states, basically. Yeah. They are surrounded by Schengen states, in particular to the north. Then. So they are they feel like they naturally belong to the European Union. Uh, and if you look at the map, you can make this argument that they should one day join geographically uh, uh, the European Union. And in population terms, they are not so big. You know, all these states together, they have about the size of Romania. So it's, it's really not so much. That said, it's a very complicated region. <laughs> You you have a lot of different ethnical lines, and you had ethnical conflicts in the in the in the past. Many of these conflicts they are kind of ghosts that regularly awaken, or that politicians regularly use for mobilization purposes. 
Uh, if you open the newspapers these days, you can see that in Bosnia-Herzegovina, there's a lot of talk of Republika Srpska splitting away from the rest. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's it's not a settled... Uh, Dispute in that sense. In that sense. And that's also one of the reasons why men in the European Union are very hesitant to actually make this full commitment to take them in. They say, look, we have had Brexit. Uh, one uh, state is already leaving us. We have had so many problems. We have conflicts right now with uh, Poland and Hungary because they they threaten the independence of the judiciary. Do we really want to take in states that have still legacies, war legacies, unsettled state yeah. uh, uh, setups, all these things? So this is the, the reason, I think. I was about to say, yeah, like, I can understand, as we said, like, why there would be incentives for the Western Balkans to join, right? I mean, there is a lot of advantages of joining the European Union. But I was going to say, yeah, what are the main advantages then for the European Union to um, get the Western Balkans um, into the European Union? As we said, there are still these uh, uh, unsettled disputes. Um, their rule of law is very different. There is more corruption, if I'm not mistaken. So I was just going to ask you, indeed, like, what are then the main incentives for um, for the European Union to actually really want to integrate them into the, the, the Schengen area and the European Union in general? I think the main reason is a certain belief that things can come, can get better. I mean, okay. if you say okay. a, a current state is not satisfactory, then you say you have to move into a process uh, that is becoming fine. Uh, I think no one is saying that they should join the next year or something like this. But the, the idea is also these states theoretically at least have a possibility to set up a state that is not defined by corruption or dysfunctional structures. Uh, but they should mm -hmm. move to what, what we have seen in other states too. And uh, okay, right now we see a lot of problems in some Eastern European states, but we have seen... Uh, uh, overall, that Eastern enlargement could be seen as a success story. I mean, the people, they became yeah. much richer in, in economic terms. Uh, they become much more accepted as Europeans. You have a lot of Eastern Europeans working right now in states such as France, Germany, Belgium. I have it too. I mean, Belgium moved to, to Poland and, and worked there. I work, I teach sometimes in Poland, actually. So I think okay. you could say that the Western Balkans, if they actually fulfill the strict conditions of the European Union, it could become better. It could actually become so good or it could actually be compatible with what the EU says and then we can take them in. Yeah. If you right now put away these incentives and say you no longer uh, can enlarge, what will happen? I mean, then you have to think of stop, yeah. alternative scenarios. You could even have that their authoritarian forces are strengthened. You could have that other actors such as Russia, China, Turkey, Middle into, Eastern yeah. countries intermingle a bit more. I mean, if Europe withdraws, uh, they will not start crying and do not, they will look for alternatives. So it's also exactly. a European self-interest to have a strong say in this region. I see. So it's kind of in that sense, a kind of deadlock where both parties kind of benefit from or just from giving these incentives to each other in that sense. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, a certain interdependence, if you want to say so. I mean, given the geography and given that they're really in the middle of, of 
other EU member states, you cannot just pretend that they are not there. You cannot just close your eyes and say whatever happens in the Western Balkans, in the southeastern European region, is of no concern for, for Europeans. That's not true simply. We yeah. saw it in the past. We see it right now. If things get out of hand, if there is a new conflict, uh, Europeans will be the first who, who will see the spillovers of such a conflict. You know? Exactly. Um, based on like what then is important for joining the EU, um, you really focus on justice and home affairs, right, in your research. Um, and often they say, as you said, if to join the EU, you have to um, apply to certain criteria. Um, but there is there has been problems, no? For example, I think with Croatia, when they apply, like they um, have the criteria, but then actually when they join the EU, the executive part of really like checking these criteria and following these criteria has been flawed. Um, what is your stance on this? Like, how is it not a bit hypocritical that this goes wrong? Yeah, I mean, there is a certain paradox in in the enlargement process because the EU's leverage towards enlargement countries is very strong pre-enlargement. Yeah, it can yeah, really exactly. demand, <laughs> it can demand a lot of reforms. They can demand that it's really strictly separated politics and the judicial sphere. Judges can do their work independently. But once they are in the European Union, the kind of the leverage decreases. Uh, I mean, the, the commission can still start a, a kind of a legal process and it's called the infringement process in which to say, no, what you're doing right now is, is a problem for media freedom, for independence of judges and so on. But it's, you, you cannot easily threaten them to, to kick them out. Basically, once you're in there, it can just be like the UK did. They can just ask themselves to quit the European Union, but the Commission cannot kick them out. So there is a, a bit of an imbalance. Why is this so? I think it has, here you could really look back to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the implosion of the former Soviet Union. I think there was a very widespread perception that right now liberal democracies have won and there is only one direction. Once you are a liberal democracy, you will remain a liberal democracy. And in the whole setup of the European Union, and also when they joined, there was not enough preparations for backslidings, for authoritarian rise and, and this kind of things. And you can see this, that the EU is struggling right now a lot with member states, with a few member states. I mean, the debates often focus on Hungary and Poland, Poland uh, yeah. that they're backslapping and they don't have enough uh, means to, to respond to this. Uh, right now, they try to, to link it a bit with the blocking of funding. So this could be more efficient than other means that were tried in the past. So the EU is working internally on having more means if there is such a backsliding and the threatening of independence. Uh, but uh, for the time being, many say as well, uh, unless we are really not, we are really having a, a good toolbox to tackle these problems, we mm -hmm. should not in other member states that may create problems exactly. in this area in the future. It's very uh, handy to first have your ammunition before you can kind of do anything before you take in like a problem, like not a problem, but take in the new member states. Uh, exactly. Yeah. In, in this sense, it's also that the Western Balkans actually, they, ha uh, they, they face the consequences of the Eastern enlargement and that not things or things didn't go exactly as many hoped for. As planned. So yeah. they were really so they saw that some of these Eastern European states, they backslided in democratic norms. So the commission is right now in many 
cases stricter with the Western Balkans than it used to be with the Eastern Europeans in order not to duplicate the mistakes that it made back then. So justice and home affairs, independence of judiciary, fundamental rights are even more important right now. How then comes that Croatia kind of slipped away and managed to still join the EU uh, in 2013? I mean, the, 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 the easiest answer would be that the commission assessed that Croatia indeed fulfilled the conditions and haven't had okay. such a big problem in the independence and judiciary. Indeed, also right now in this region, the commission is also more concerned with Bulgaria and Romania compared to Croatia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bulgaria and Romania joined a few years already before Croatia. So they joined in 2007, Croatia in 2013. Uh, and this Croatia has a bit less in the in the debate than the others. The, uh, Okay, so they, they simply just got, like, they had the criteria, and that's why. Um, like, they did the homework, if you want to say so, yes. Uh, fair enough. Okay. Um, to go back to your your um, uh, to your to research, because in your conclusion, you kind of argue, as you already argued, that the EU should keep giving these small incentives. Um, with the knowledge of today, like, what do you wish you had known on this topic or on your conclusion when you publish your PhD? Like, is there something that changed in these, these well, what is it, 15 years? Yeah, I mean, the big incentive would be the, the incentive of membership. So this is a very distance uh, incentive. So in my research, too, I saw that it's much more efficient if there are more short-handed incentives, such as visa liberalization, There is an energy market. You give this kind of uh, tangible outcomes of some compliance efforts. So if they do do some policy reforms and policy adaptations, you give them more short-term incentives. That was a bit my argument too, that uh, in this sense, the dynamic of the Western Balkan enlargement is a very different dynamic to the Eastern European enlargement, where this strong membership incentive was really the dominant game in the in the town uh, what happened in the last 15 years um, i would say you can go with short-term incentives only that long <laughs> eventually exactly. after 15, 10 years the question of the credibility of the long term of the real incentives comes up more or ever again and and what we're seeing right now is that many in the western balkans they do no longer believe that this incentive will ever come to them. They believe they will always remain in this kind of pre-enlargement stadium. And and you can see that right now it's really critical that uh, in particular in Bosnia, things fall apart or risk falling apart. uh, And that the European Union, I mean, they try to meditate and, but it's really difficult to keep a momentum. uh, And many, many people are very concerned about uh, what will happen in the in the Western Balkans in the in the next few years? I mean, it makes sense, right? Like keeping a country or keeping someone for twenty years in a waiting room with giving them small incentives. It's like it's not a very constructive way of building a relationship, I would say. Uh, yeah, but in these twenty years, I mean, the European Union, I mean, they really transformed, if you want to say so. They were for for. A, a, a club of 15 member states, they grew to 28 member so, states. Then one, the UK decided to quit. So it was a lot of internal changes, turmoil. And they said, I mean, it's understandable also their perspective. They said, 
yeah. unless everything settles a bit more, uh, we have a bit more <laughs> clarity internally, we cannot take in new members. Uh, so that's the, it's, it's a tricky situation. Exactly. I think that's a very good conclusion. Uh, maybe moving away a bit from your research, but looking more um, at your academic work. Um, I mean, you did academic work for, as you said, the uh, Free University of Brussels, the College of Europe and various other um, uh, prestigious universities as guest lecturers. Um, but you also advise several European institutions, right? Um, how does this, can you maybe for the listener illustrate how this works and how, do, how does this come about to advise um, European institutions? there can be different uh, ways in which you advise. I mean, you can kind of, the easiest way what many people are doing are also evaluating certain programs that the commission sets up. Uh, partly these programs target other researchers, partly more uh, the policy world. So this would be a kind of an evaluator, independent evaluator. Then there is some work in which you're an external expert for either the parliament or let's say the European Commission uh, and they try to find out what is actually going on in certain areas uh, in certain fields how how do uh, uh, how do uh, I mean stakeholders perceive a policy challenge mm -hmm. uh, I recently for instance evaluated or worked as an expert uh, through in the uh, for the European Commission, basically, and they said we would like to evaluate how the Chinese EU visa regime works and is seen by different participants. Okay. So, uh, in such a research report, you talk to many stakeholders. Be it right now, people working in the tourism industry, uh, people working for airline companies. Uh, you work to visa applicants from China and the European Union themselves, and you come up with what they perceive as big challenges uh, in, 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 in applying for a visa, for instance. So this is the, the kind of the, the work you're doing. Uh, it's to provide a scientific analysis of certain key challenges. Uh, what happens then thereafter uh, uh, is, is a different story. <laughs> it depends really <laughs> if it is used from from institutions or 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 not. You know exactly. That was my following following up question. Like so, then they use experts, but how significant is this input? Like, is there actually? Because recently I found out that at least for. Um, rare earth minerals that a lot of like policy made by the D by the dgs that are responsible for that are actually based on the input from experts from like just scholars um but i was wondering in this field um uh, of, of enlargement or integration and like how significant then is the uh, the final result you know for policy because i feel like often expert even though if you're an expert and you give your advice um if it's just not practical like um uh, institutions like the commission they I guess they will just put it down and not really uh, deal with it. Yeah, I mean, these institutions, they face pressure from all kinds of sides and they have to basically respond to these pressures. They have to, to make the policy stances in a, in a policy process yeah, in which the Commission interacts with member states, with the European Parliament. So I think uh, they kind of selectively, I mean, it's, it's understandably for yeah. their perspective, it's a rational behavior too. I mean, they sometimes selectively use also scientific input or research 
to strengthen their own arguments. When yeah. they don't have a clear argument, they, they base it more. When they already have a kind of an idea in which the journey should go, they may only more selectively <laughs> take out some conclusions. So it's a bit like this. I mean, you should never believe, I think, if you're in any advisory role to any of these institutions that you can have easily any impact or a big impact. It really depends how it's taken up and and such. But I mean, in generally, I think, yeah, academics, they have a very modest impact, I think, <laughs> on, on, on really the policy that is going to, 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 to evolve. What, That's what, my what then does it make so, what then is so fun about being a scholar or academic for you? Like, uh, for you personally, maybe it's interesting for people to hear, like, what does you drive you then to be a scholar and academic? But, I mean, in an academic, you have different ambitions already. I mean, you engage with basically the youth. You try to to stimulate critical thinking. Uh, you try to educate them. Uh, my role as a core academic is not to have a strong influence right now in shaping the current policies. Mm -hmm. It's really, I analyze it, I explain it, what's happening. But my key audience are basically people working or engaging widely in education, be it students, be it other academics, sometimes be it, uh, I mean, right now, I mean, here you have to do different. Sometimes really you, you have more and more this ambition as well to reach out to a wider public. It's getting actually more relevant in recent year, let's say it, because uh, universities say, okay, we are funded by public means, uh, so we have to give something back. Uh, but that said, uh, uh, I think no one has realistically so much the expectation of an academic to 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 be uh, in a very similar function than a policy actor. In a way, it's it's a different exactly. job, a different uh, to do list. <laughs> What you have. I think it's like, I think you can see that a lot in these television interviews, right? Where the expert then is placed on the table and it's just very objectively tells, okay, analyzes this and this happens. Then often there's like a policymaker next to it. It's like, yeah, like I make this and this out of it. So I think that's like then maybe the, the difference between the two uh, disciplines. I mean, ideally, I think uh, you can really have a policymaking that is based on scientific evidence on, 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 on really understanding the issues. I think policymakers do make better policies if they take into account what is basically researched and found out in, in scientific uh, uh, research, because scientific research is meant to be really independent and to come up uh, with conclusions either, you know, by looking at statistics or talking, having, you know, qualitative methods. So I think they would very much benefit from doing it more than they are doing it right now already. But, uh, I mean, that's an ideal case scenario. <laughs> it's an ideal situation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, not completely related to your dissertation or to anything really PhD related, but um, as you are an EU expert, um, I often come across conversations or people that kind of find the EU a very dull topic uh, in the sense that they do not really know what's happening in, in Brussels and they find it too technocratic. Um, is there anything uh, as an expert you want to say to these people about what the EU can mean for them and what it actually brought us and why it is maybe not such a dull topic? I mean, uh... <laughs> 
I mean, I think in generally the EU is still influencing us quite a bit every day now in, in Europe. I mean, look, if, if you withdraw money from the cash machine, it's euro. If you cross the the, the borders, uh, you don't have border controls easily this time. I, even when I was younger, you know, we had different currencies or it was crossing the borders was much more difficult. So I think it's a very relevant subject. And I think people can actually also benefit from different opportunities offered by the European integration for their own life speed, because there are business opportunities that are financed by European Union program, because you can study right now more easily in different countries, all these kind of things. So I think there could be a personal interest for Europeans to fully understand what is, uh, uh, what is, what is possible in, in, in Europe today. Yeah. But I'm aware that uh, sometimes it's relatively tricky to get good information. The websites are a bit old-fashioned <laughs> by the Commission, and uh, sometimes they are not very present on social media too. I mean, if you talk to them, then they say it's because they are so much attacked too. Uh, so it's, it's, it would require, or it's very complicated right now, as an institutional actor to be very present, let's say, on Facebook, on Twitter, on on. Mm -hmm on this kind of social medias. So, but some of them are still relatively active. So this would be one way to engage relatively smoothly. You find out what is really of interest for you. And then you follow this commissioner or you follow yeah. specific uh, DG or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Then there are some specific journals that are relatively easy to, to access and which provide good information in the European Union. So there's Euroactive, for instance, or EU Observer. Uh, that that uh, that or the Guardian, the UK journal, they always have very interesting uh, um, newspaper articles on EU, and it's also free to access. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be the easy channels to to get more information on the Fair European enough. Union. Yeah, I always have the feeling that the EU does a lot, but that it does not really come across, or that maybe people take it for granted as like being normal. Um, or that people are just not aware of, for example, the funds or things that are available for a lot of people that you can actually make use of. So maybe a PR boost for the EU. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's also a bit the problem of the governments too, huh? because every time when there is something nice to, to announce, it's basically their merit. They go home, they say, we do it. So it's the... the the national media then focus much more on their government mm -hmm. and the European Union in positive terms is often then thought as an afterthought. And if something is going not so smoothly, it's blaming blame Brussels. <laughs> Brussels, yeah. But it's a bit like this. The the general perception can easily be then, yeah, okay, the, the really funny things they are not coming out of, of this Brussels bubble there. Fair enough. I think that's a very I mean as sovereign states, is also maybe a logical political tool to do that. Um, to wrap up the conversation, uh, I always ask people like, what is their favorite moment during their uh, their PhD journey? Uh, uh, so that's also my question to you. I mean, my favorite journey was definitely when I was standing at the, after the defense and getting <laughs> get the proof. It was when everything was over. I was at least very relieved. But there were good moments during the journey too. I mean. I, I did research uh, in North Macedonia, for instance. Uh, I went to Skopje. 
and I talked to the people in the Ministry of Interior because I was interested in the migration and, and fundamental rights and all the things there. Uh, and I can remember that at one interview, uh, the, 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 the person, my contact person, he brought in six, seven others and they all couldn't believe that someone in Austria is coming to their ministry, not the foreign ministry, <laughs> not any other, the Ministry of Interior, and is really interested in what they are working on. So we had a very interesting <laughs> conversation. And I thought it was, it was really a great experience and, and uh, nice as well to engage with them, see their perspective and to learn. So this this going out, talking to people, being being close to trying to understand, I think that's that's really funny aspects of, of a PhD journey. Exactly. That's really cool. So I think an advice would be go out there, talk to people and uh, who knows you, who you may encounter, right? Yeah, that's the go there. Find a, really try to find out what, what you're interested in and, and go directly in the midst of things, so to speak. Fair enough. Cool. Thank you so much, Florian. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, thank you so much and all the best luck, best of luck in your, in your future career and personal life. Thanks, Sam. Uh, Good luck for you and your podcast as well. I think it's a great initiative and I look forward to many more interesting episodes to come there. Ah, you made it to the end. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the topic as much as I did. Um, the question of whether or not the Western Balkans can join is a very valid question and it very much shapes the political landscape in that very region. Um, more on Florian's research can be found on the web. And if you have any other questions, always feel free to reach out to me as well. Um, also, if you have done your PhD and you think, hey, I would like to stare on this podcast. Just send me a message and I'm sure we can figure something out. Um, stay safe. And as you guys might hear, there is a lot of wind right now, like there is a storm. So I thought it would be nice to have some sober reggae um, in the outro. So uh, enjoy the last beats of this nice reggae tune and uh, see you next time. Bye.